All right. I'm liking what I'm seeing so far. It looks like YouTube is up and running. We've got about one more minute left to start. Let me pull up my other screen here, make sure that that is working well. All right. Hey folks, uh, it is good to see you back. Uh, we're here for session two of this mastermind. Uh, we are covering the uh, John C. Maxwell Leadership book. And this is a book that really spoke to me. I got this, got this a while ago. I, you know, honestly, I think I got it almost a year ago. And then I'd been halfway through the book and there was other things that I was reading and working on. And then this coronavirus broke out and it has occurred to me personally that, you know, we have, we suffer, what seems to me like a, a severe leadership shortage uh, as far as our culture is concerned here. And I thought, you know, every small group, every small niche, every uh, gaggle of people needs to have somebody that'll, you know, step up and, and take a leadership role, you know, and, and guide and, and things like that. There's a John Maxwell quote that always sticks out to me and it says, um, good leaders uh, see more than others and see before others. And so that is one of the things that uh, I strive for. I, I try to be someone that's, you know, walking around cognizant, eyes open, you know, and, and try to be alert to things. Um, but as I read the book and, and I begin to understand some different leadership principles, uh, a lot of it jumps off the page at me. And uh, I know I've covered some of this in session one, but if you're new to this, to this mastermind call, I did want to cover that, uh, you know, I love the John Maxwell uh, leadership series of books. Uh, I'm a John Maxwell certified speaker and trainer. Uh, my favorite books are like Leadership 360, the 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership that I, I love to speak about. Uh, and then of course there's, there's this book here, there is uh, Limitless, there is Intentional Living, and all of these properties um, they come together and they, and they may seem like they're written on the, on the same content or the same bend. And, and while that might be partially true, they're all very specific in their application. And there are multiple times where I'll read something a second or a third time and I'll go, oh, oh, okay, wow, that's different. And this coronavirus thing is one of those moments where I'm taking a, a second look at this book and I'm going, wow, you know, I'm really glad that I'm taking the time and the energy to cover this. Uh, I got some pretty good feedback from session one, and uh, I wanted to make sure that, you know, I didn't take too long to jump into, hey, there's Cassandra. She's saying hi to us on, on Zoom there. How are you, Cassandra? Uh, Katie, what's going on, girl? And um, I wanted to just make sure that uh, as we cover this book, that I, I don't position it as like a fix-all, but more like a, hey, if you have these qualities, if you have some of these tendencies in you and you know that we can develop those, well then that's something that I would like to see us step forward with. And so if you remember in the, in the first session, we talked about you know, why every leader needs to leader shift and why is the book called Leader Shift? And let me just kind of recount that. We, we had spoken last, uh, at the beginning of the week, we said management systems and processes tend to be linear. Hey, hey, got people signing in, that's awesome. Uh, Management systems and processes tend to be linear. They assume uh, that similar inputs will result in similar outputs. And I said that, you know, I'd seen that when I'd worked corporately, you know, a, a management team might say, okay, well, hey, if we got this much output with three people, if we have four people, we'll get 25 or 30% more output, right? If we have 
four people and we add somebody, we'll get 25% more output. And that's not necessarily true, right? Because leadership, uh, leadership is different than management. Leadership is more dynamic, right? So it, it takes a more nuanced view of the world because it involves people, what motivates them, what their interests are, and how engaged they become. Mechanical systems may be linear, but as soon as the human element becomes involved, the system becomes both more complex and more adaptive. And so when I am working with a group of people, I think a lot about personality styles, personality traits, communication styles, work styles, things like that. And that's kind of what this book is getting around. So like if you may be DISC certified or you might be thinking of that book, uh, Wired That Way, things like that, that's kind of what that's getting into. Um, but I thought that kind of recounting the earlier week's session would be good. You guys remember what we said about the, the cheetah and how adaptable a cheetah would be? The reason that story stuck out to me was, you know, before reading this, I'll keep thinking of like a cheetah, right? Like running straight across the field, like I said last week. Cheetah just runs straight across the field and he just, boom, tackles his prey. That's it, right? That's, that's how he wins, because he's fast. Uh, and it's not that he is uh, super fast. I mean, that's, that's a great trait. He is super fast. But it's his ability to slow down abruptly. It's at up to nine miles an hour in one single stride. So he can slow down abruptly and pivot and change. And that's how he's able to kind of forecast what the antelope is doing and kill the antelope. So that's one of the things I'm like, oh, holy crud, that makes a whole lot more sense, right? And so it talked about a long range plan, what would be considered a long range plan five, 10 years ago, right? That would be, let's say everybody would have a five year plan and a 10 year plan, right? You're growing your business and you have a, you have a business plan and you're like, okay, so what's our three year goal? What's our five year goal? What's our 10 year goal? And now what people used to consider being a you know, five-year plan is really a two or three-year plan, right? Things have sped up. The, the rate of change has happened at such a, at such a rapid pace that you know, we need to be ready to shift at any point. And this coronavirus outbreak is what really inspired me to launch this mastermind open, free, and available to everybody. And that's because I saw this as an absolute leadership event. Uh, when companies started jumping online and, and jumping online, they were saying, uh, hey, we're going to jump online. We're going to take everybody online. Everybody go home with your laptop. We'll just move everything online. They sent students home from school and they said, we're going to move everything online. And I'm sitting here as one of these people that helps companies get online. And I'm going, how, how's everybody going to do this overnight? Like this usually takes, you know, some kind of planning, a budgetary committee and all that kind of stuff. I'll be honest with you. It would take a company like Suzuki that I used to work for, it would take them four or five times as long to approve a project just with budgets and paperwork and nonsense than it would for me to actually do the job. And so knowing that that's how big corporations work, I'm looking at all of this news with the coronavirus and sending everybody home. I'm going, how are they going to get online? Like, what are their considerations? And so when I think about that paradigm shift, in work habits, I'm like, holy crud. Now take this another step further. They send everybody home with a laptop. So now everybody's at home working, right? They sign in via VPN and they're, you know, pulling reports and their CSV files and they're plunking along, drinking coffee, petting the dog, everything's great. What's going to happen in a month or 45 days when the boss calls up and goes, hey, you know, great news, Joe, the office is open. We need you to come on back. How many people are going to say, I'm not getting back on the highway. I'm not going to commute. I'm not going to do that. Nope. I work at home now. And that's, this is the new, this is the new normal. 
and I'm really interested to see how culture adjusts to um, life being back on. Um, let's see if I can unmute. Nope, she's got herself muted. All right, I was gonna unmute you, Katie, and see if you wanna say hi to everybody, but you're muted. Hi. Hi, Katie. Do you feel, do you feel <laughs> awkward now that you're on, on video? Yes. <laughs> yeah, you wanna turn the camera on, will you? I don't know how. Oh, that's okay. See, this is a perfect example of leadership and technology. <laughs> <laughs> don't start. <laughs> it's okay, I'm drinking energy drink. I'm gonna be a little crazy. I just downloaded this app like 15 minutes ago, so. Yeah, I live on this program. I, I literally run meetings on this um, day after day, week after week. This, is, this has been what I've been doing since I left Suzuki in January. Oh man. Cool. So how do I do this? How do I turn it on? Uh, you should have some kind of an icon on your screen that has a little picture of like a movie camera with an X through it or a line through it. And then there you go. There's my oh, girl. I did it. <laughs> There you go. You should hold the camera up so we don't all look up your nose. <laughs> all right. So uh, when we talk about getting back to the book, right? Uh, so when we're talking about the leader shift in last week, at the beginning of the week, we said good leaders adapt and they shift. And then we talked about a bunch of stories and that's all available in the Manana Nomas leadership lesson. So if you're wanting to, you know, dive in and do the pre-work and the, the two little lessons of pre-course work and stuff, um, I'm recording these calls and then you'll learning management system. And so you'll be able to see the message from Tuesday. You'll be able to jump in there and go, oh, got it. And so I don't have to repeat the whole thing today. The one thing that I thought was really interesting was it said, why every leader needs the leadership it was near the end. And it said, realize today's best will not meet tomorrow's challenges. And we are seeing that right now, like bar none. Like what you did a month ago is not good enough today. Uh, if you're gonna try and keep a business alive, that is. So the challenge there was, there was four things that said, learn something new, try something different, find something better, or see something bigger. And so those were the things when we talked on Tuesday, I said, well, let's try and take a stab at that, right? So learn something new, try something different, find something better, or see something bigger. Like Katie right now is trying something new. She's on Zoom for the first time. Uh, I don't know, the rest of you that are looking at this on uh, YouTube Live or on Facebook or looking at this in the lesson series, um, this was your challenge. So I challenge you now to answer the question, you know, what did you try that was new or different or better or bigger? And then let's just jump into this session. This session is soloist to conductor. So soloist to conductor. And what's interesting is what John does in the book this time is he talks about a soloist being a musical expert. He talks about a soloist being somebody that can make music with their instrument whenever they want, however they want. They got it going on. Like, like they're awesome at their deal. But how does a soloist excel or succeed as in a leader position? So a soloist is compared to like the worker, right? And then the conductor is the leader. So can a really good soloist be an excellent leader? And that's a fantastic question. What kind of um, transformation or transition would someone have to make to go from soloist 
to conductor. And that's what chapter two here in the book is talking about a little bit. And the inspiration for that comes right at the front with a, with a quote, it says, one is too small a number to achieve greatness. Right. And so, and I think about this a lot, like there's a lot of things that I've taught myself to do over the last decade or two. There's a bunch of things like I can fix Ducati motorcycles. I can, I can race a motorcycle. I can bicycle my wheels off. I can, you know, there's all these things, but if I want to achieve like greatness or, or create a legacy, it's going to take more than what I do myself. It's going to take more than me to make something that's impactful. So I need to grow a team of people to, to accomplish that. Right. It's like the law of multiplication. If you were to read that in the 21 irrefutable laws of leadership. So it says one of the first and most important shifts anyone must make to become a leader is from soloist to conductor. You can be a successful person on your own, but not necessarily a successful leader. And the inspiration for this concept for John Maxwell came through Zig Ziglar. And Zig Ziglar's a crazy fun name if you've never heard it before, but he was just a super renowned speaker and writer and author. Uh, he was really well respected in uh, like the original leadership books and stuff like that that had come out. And his method of speaking was different than most speakers at the time. A lot of speakers that had formal training kind of like kind of stood formally and at a podium and presented. And Zig Ziglar had a way of just kind of moving around the stage and talking to people and just kind of hanging. And, and that's something that we might be familiar with in today's age as far as presenting or public speaking goes, but it wasn't real common then. And Zig had a, a tendency to speak like that. And he also had an accent that was kind of remarkable. It was a Southern draw. So one of the things that John had saw the first time he saw Zig speak was the speaking style. But the other thing was something he heard. And he said, you can get everything in life you want if you'll just help enough other people get what they want. And that's like super important thinking about leadership and leadership the way that it's taught now, right? So normally someone thinks about, I want to become the manager at work. I want these people to do what I need done. I need to have this many people do this many tasks. And that's the way that a lot of people think about leadership. Um, a lot of people in other countries, in fact, think of leaders from, from a negative standpoint. So if you were to go to another country and do a presentation at a school, say a bunch of mid-schoolers, and say, hey, everybody put up your hand, everybody that wants to be a leader, you know, they wouldn't put their hands up because their representation of leadership is usually something that is negative. It's something where leaders have usurped or um, they've overused their power to the point of gaining something for personal gain rather than helping an organization. So they don't see leadership as a positive, they see leadership as a negative. And so when, when you look at this and you say, this is remarkable then, right? Because this is like in the 70s. So you can, you can get everything in life you want if you'll just help enough other people get what they want. And then it makes you start to think. So how can I, how can I accomplish an overarching, overarching goal of, of what I'm trying to accomplish while still adding value to others, giving them what they need along the way, helping them succeed, which adds to my success? And that's kind of what this multidimensional approach to leadership is all about. Um, John talks about... Uh, his early leadership roles. He says he was like the soloist who wanted the entire orchestra to serve his agenda. Instead, uh, he needed to act like a conductor who worked to bring out the best of everyone around him. His agenda needed to change on how he could help others, not just himself. 
And that's like super, super important. I think about one of the most recent um, kind of interactions I had at Suzuki before I left Suzuki. Um, I had a, a gentleman that worked for me and I'll be honest, you know, when I started there, we didn't really hit it off all that well. We just did not hit it off. And I kept thinking, how can I get this guy to, to, to produce? How can I get this to happen? It just wasn't, things weren't gelling. I knew it wasn't gelling. And I was trying different leadership techniques and trying different management techniques. And the culture at Suzuki was definitely more management than leadership. And so I was trying to, to feel my way through this. And finally, I kind of snapped and I just did leadership the way I think leadership should be internally. We had a one-on-one -on -one conversation. And after that, we seemed to gel and get along just fine. And he ended up becoming one of my most valued employees to the point that when I had a manager's meeting, I would call him out by name and I would say, this is the improvement that so-and-so has made over the last six months, A, B, C, D, and E. He needs recognition for this, this, and this. He needs recognition for that, that, and that. We need to further invest in this person this way. Now, when you think about that experience, it's not like, what could I get from him? It's more like, how can we invest in him so we can continue to get the best from him? Hopefully that makes sense. I mean, I know that it's in the end, you're still trying to accomplish your overarching goal, but the methodology on getting to that goal is completely different. You're adding value to the person instead of sucking life from that person. So I really like that part. Moving on to uh, page 21, uh, near the bottom of the book. And, and remember, I put the links to, if you wanted to get a copy of the book or get the ebook from Amazon, uh, those links are on the learning management site and they're in the original invitation announcing the series. So, and I'll keep posting those links into my social so that people, you know, if they lose track can always find that link for Amazon, but it's John C. Maxwell's leadership book, right? And so down at page 21, it starts a new section. It says, challenges leader shifting from soloist to conductor. So John's established that you want to go from soloist to conductor, and now he's gonna talk about the challenges in doing so. He says the potential of a group is always greater than that of an individual. Um, and I think that that's kind of obvious, right? It's based on the law of multiplication. If a group of people are attacking something, let's say you can do something 100%, right? You can do a job to 100% of its effectivity, but you got five people that can do the same job at 80% um, productivity, effectivity, right? It's much, much better to have five people working at 80% on a common goal than to have one person working at 100%. Hopefully that makes sense. And if you have the right traits of leadership, not only can you have those five people working at their 80%, but that frees your 100% back up so that you can work on another in initiatives and other goal setting to get other teams motivated. So there, there's a lot going on there when you talk about the theory of multiplication or multiplicity, right? So. Um, <laughs> one of the first things, and, and this was, this is the hardest. I even wrote me next to it. Um, one of the hardest challenges in going from soloist to conductor is slowing down. Um, if you followed my social at all during this coronavirus thing, you've seen, I've, I've been kind of nuts, right? I've got lives and, and commercials and I'm making videos and contents and blogs and man, I'm, I'm all over the place. And it's because I truly believe this is the time. This is opportunity. Whenever there's a paradigm shift, whenever there is a, a great change, a great quick change, that's an opportunity. So I'm trying to not miss the opportunity. I'm trying to become a household name for everybody that does anything online or remote because I want to, I want to cement my spot, right? 
in a group dynamic, that doesn't work. It just plain and simple doesn't work. Generally, if you're the leader, people that you are leading will not work at the pace that you are used to working at. So you need to slow down. And there's so many times where I'll slow down on purpose for a group and there'll be other people in the group that are high performance and they'll be giving me like this weird look like, why are we going so slow? Well, we're going so slow because we got to get the rest of the team with us. If I am climbing a mountain and I climb the highest mountain and I get to the top and I'm waving the flag and I'm up there by myself and I say, man, it sure is lonely at the top. Well, then I failed as a leader, right? Because as a leader, I got to be with my people. I got to be behind my people. I got to push them all to the top of the mountain. I can't just be at the top of the mountain by myself. So John writes about that here in his book. And he says, he says, if you climb the peaks of success alone, you're not a leader, you're a hiker. Uh, you're, you're a leader only if you have people with you. And that's the point that I was making. Uh, at the bottom, it talks about bottom of the page 22. Uh, there's a famous cellist that he's talking about. And this cellist wanted to be a conductor. And so it says, um, now as a conductor, she can't do that. And it was talking about being able to play whatever music she wants, whenever she wants, right? And it says, now as a conductor, she can't do that. She has to make arrangements. She has to be on other people's schedules. She has to take into consideration the abilities, personalities of a large group of people, and she has to communicate her vision. In the end, she bears responsibility for their success or failure. And that's one of the hardest things to do when you're a really successful soloist, when you're a really great worker. It's like the guy who's an awesome electrician, right? He's a fantastic electrician. He can wire up a house like that, build you a she shed, no problem, right? Wire the whole thing up. So then he says, well, I'm going to go into business for myself. And he buys a couple of trucks. He hires a couple of apprentices, a couple of journeymen. He's got people out there doing stuff. Nothing is going to be done at his level of work, at his pace. Like he's always going to be frustrated. And one of the hardest things for him to do is to pull back the reins a little bit, slow things down and go, okay, I got to adapt and I have to get used to their pace and then work with them and mentor them and get alongside of them and get behind them and nurture them and get them to eventually be at his pace and his quality of work. And so that's, it's, it's a, it's a big, big game and it's a dance. Uh, later in the book, John refers to it as the leadership dance. Talks about being ahead of people because you want to be ahead to lead. You want to you show people how to do something, but then you have to come alongside of them and you have to nurture them through it. And sometimes you have to get behind them and give them a little shove. And once you get them moving, you got to jump back up front again and then you got to go back and forth, kind of play the game. He calls it step ahead, step beside, and step behind, right? It's a dance. That, Blows us over to page 24, and it says, recognizing that you need others. I'll ask Katie, because she's on the live video. Are you, <laughs> are you following along okay? Trying, yes. <laughs> Multitasking. Multitasking. All right. It says, another reality you must recognize when transitioning from soloist to conductor is your need for other people. Now, I think I've already hit on this, and I think I've already kind of beat it up a little bit. But if you get to the top of the mountain and no one's with you, you're not leading, you're hiking, right? We already talked about that. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is leaders have a tendency, when they're management style leaders, they have a tendency to think that people need them, right? They have, a, they have, the, they have this idea that the staff needs them. They, they need me to lead them. They need me to show them what to do. And to a certain extent, there's a little truth in that. But the greater point is, the leader needs them, 
right? And so it says, um, down here it says, before I heard Zig Ziglar speak and realized I needed to make a leader shift, I only thought of how people needed me. I believed I was the key to their success. See, that's kind of important, right? So John, when he was a young leader, when he was more of a manager than a leader, he made the assumption that he was the key to someone else's success. It was only through his knowledge and his expertise that people underneath him could find success, right? Uh, but after I started focusing on helping others, I began to understand how much I needed them. Only by working together and helping one another would we be able to become successful. Uh, and I think that that's one of the keys. When, when that leadership happens, you begin to think in terms of inclusion. You begin to think in terms of, well, for instance, like I volunteered a bunch of different churches and stuff like that. And if you allow yourself to volunteer at a church and then look around at people that are paid staff, if you allow that to happen to yourself, you'll see some, you'll see someone doing the same job you're doing at a church. They might be getting a paycheck and you're not getting a paycheck or you might be doing more work than they're doing. And they seem like they're kind of half messing off half the day. Right. And if you allow yourself to get into that um, scarcity mindset, right. And forget the main purpose of why you're doing what you're doing. It can be something that becomes an erosive quality, right? But you want to have something that's a, a quality of contribution. So it's important that you think of things in terms of not competing, but completing, right? And, and I know that, that sounds like a real play on words, but if you think in terms of competition, like who does the most or who does the least, pardon me, or who has the most value or the least value, um, those are qualities that can create hardships in the workplace or in the volunteer organization or whatever you're doing. But if you go at it from a perspective of, you know, everyone needs the leader, the leader needs everyone, right? And you think in terms of completing a group rather than competing within the group, things get a lot clearer, right? So John says he's made it the goal to cultivate an environment where we complete each other ahead of competing with each other. And then he has two columns and the traits of competing, right? So traits of competing versus traits of completing. Uh, if you are competing, you have a scarcity mindset. And if you're completing, you have an abundance mindset. If you're competing, you think in lose and win, right? You think in terms of win and loss. If you're completing, you think in terms of win-win. If I were to go back to the story I talked about where I had that person at Suzuki that I had overseen, managed, or led, however you want to phrase that, and things weren't going so great, and then things suddenly did go great. I think if I were to be real with you and, and break that down, my perception of our tasks had completely changed because there was a point in our professional relationship where we didn't have a, an interpersonal relationship. And leadership is a lot like sales. It's relationships based, right? And I didn't have enough of an established relationship with this individual to get performance from him. But then after we had our conversation and our kind of interactions had changed a little bit, I realized it's not that I need to tell him what to do. I need to jump into this task with him, help him accomplish things, guide him in the way that I think it needs to be done. And once I lay some infrastructure around the project with his buy-in and with his contribution to the project, the project will come out much, much better. And in the end, we ended up with a stellar uh, project, uh, a stellar property that he could share as a trainer uh, with the rest of the people in the country that he was teaching. 
but it was it was an absolute um, paradigm shift in the way that me and that one individual had dealt with each other. And it had a lot to do with this kind of situation, right? Instead of being in a competition mindset of, I don't even know why he's the boss anyway. I think that guy's an idiot. Crap. That guy doesn't perform with, with the jack. I don't know why we keep on the team, right? Those types of negative comments, whether they go upstream or downstream, have a negative effect and create a scarcity mindset. Whereas if I say, hey, you know what? He's a great trainer. He's well-spoken. He knows the product. Let's just build the best project we can with what we've got. That changes things. It might be saying the same thing, but the way it's said and the way that it's implemented is completely different. So it says, after, after a completing culture creates wins for everyone, it lifts morale, it encourages team members to make one another better, and people enjoy working in such an environment. Now, if the environment changes from, I don't know why that guy's the boss, I think he's an idiot, and I don't know why I keep that guy employed, I wish I could fire him. If you can get rid of that, and then you have everybody working on the same team trying to, to get ahead to make something better, and the morale improves, and people actually like working there, how much more productivity do you think you get out of the team when people are happy to do the work that they're doing? Right. And then and that, that triples, that triples everything. And Katie's smiling. So she knows. I know. <laughs> she knows. Uh, next in the book, we were skipping to page 25. Uh, it says making the effort to understand others, you know, and remember he's, he was talking about a soloist, like a, a solo celloist is a celloist cellist, like a soloist cellist uh, becoming a condu conductor. Right. So when he says, make the effort to understand others, and then he tries to relay, you know, music to entrepreneurship. So he says, many entrepreneurs and high achievers are able to work alone. Like good soloist musicians who choose to play in the subway, they can create music without the assistance of any other musicians. It's also true that some soloists are so talented that others are willing to work with them, even if the soloist is egotistical or inconsiderate. And that's like any of these Hollywood movies we watch where there's some star that's like going to be in the show or in the movie that's just a pain in the butt to be around, but everyone deals with it on the set, right? It says, uh, no one can become a good conductor without making the effort to understand other people. When people lead without taking the time or making the effort to understand those who are trying to follow them, the results can be tragic or comic. And I, if I'm real with you, if I'm, if I'm going to be honest with you, I would say that was probably my issue at Suzuki with that one individual. Uh, as I had said earlier, maybe I didn't have the right relationship to have that leadership role with that particular individual at that time, right? And so how do you guide that? How do you know that? Well, that comes under the law of intuition, right? It's one of the 21 irrefutable laws of leadership. You have to rely on your law of intuition to be able to know when, or you know, your law of timing takes over, like when can you execute? And unfortunately for me, um, I felt secure in my leadership abilities and I felt secure in the project we had to get done for the company, but I probably didn't do the best of work uh, relaying my thought about our relationship and my security and my confidence with my employee at the time. And so it led to a little bit of a heartache trying to get some stuff done. Uh, later in that same little section there, uh, he's talking, he tells a story about his grandkids and he talks about letting them take turns leading. And again, it's a, it's a music related thing. He's on a trip and he's got his grandkids and they're all hanging out down at a property. And he says, let's play band. And so he says, here's a whistle and here's a baton. 
and here's a kazoo and, and you know, a tambourine and a whatever, right? So he's got four or five kids lined up and he gets them all in a line. And so he says, I'll show you how it works. So he becomes the band leader and he takes the baton, he rolls it forward, he blows the whistle, everybody starts playing music and he starts walking them around the yard, right? So you can imagine how silly this looks, right? This old man walking around with a bunch of little kids playing kazoos and tambourines. I guess that's what rich white people do, uh, just doing this thing. And then he says, I'm going to give everybody a chance to lead. So he gives everybody a chance to have the baton and the whistle. So everyone's doing it and everyone's leading. And there goes my camera again. And uh, finally gets to the little kid. And I forget what the little kid's name is. Uh, we should give him a name, shouldn't we? John Porter. So it finally gets to John Porter's turn to lead. He's just like four years old or something like that. Oh, and he, he, rolls the, he rolls the baton forward, blows the whistle, gets everybody going. And he thinks it's cool that everyone's listening to him. So then he blows the whistle and stops. And then he takes a step and he blows the whistle and goes. Then he stops and he goes and he stops. And what John notices there after he's done laughing is he says, when you work for management that starts and stops and starts and stops, you're not marching, you're lurching. And I think in that, just the way that he phrases that and the story that he tells, how many, I'm in my fifties now, right? So how many, I've had way too many jobs. I mean, I've sold ladies shoes. I've had way too many jobs. Um, how many times have I worked for an employer or a boss where I didn't feel like things were moving forward? I felt like things were like lurching. It was like, hurry up and wait, hurry up and wait, hurry up and wait. And there was always some pressure to get to the next thing. And then you'd get there and you're like, what now? And they're like, well, hold on, hold on. You know, and, and you just never got into a rhythm. And that's what he's talking about here. He's saying, if you don't lead people properly, you'll cause them to not have a smooth rhythm that you'll cre cause them to lurch, right? Um, later in that same section, uh, he was talking about different partners and talking about, you know, ballroom dancing and, and all kinds of things. And one of the things that he was talking about was the tango. And again, this is one of these subjects I don't know anything about. I don't dance the tango. I don't know anything about ballroom dancing, but in the book here, it says in order to be good at the tango, the leader has to know exactly what it's like to have to follow. And the leader sets it up so that the person that's following, so let's just go with the normal roles, male and female, right? So the male's leading the female. It's the male's job not to look good, but it's the male's job to lead so they can lead the female to look good. So as if you think about the way the tango works, um, it says, you know, he said the key understanding to your partner's point of view to be able to lead properly you want to understand how it feels to be led. In the tango, you cannot lead without having the sense of the follower. The follower has to be able to trust the leader, and she must be able to move with him in time with the music. Only together can they accomplish the dance. The cooperation understanding also applies equally to good leadership. So what he's saying there is, if someone's going to be really, really good at the tango, the person leading has to fully understand what it's like to be the follower, and then they have to be a good foundation and they have to be stable to allow the, the other person to have the flair, right? And so talks about working together to get to the same goal. And in the end, when they accomplish the task, they both look good, right? So by working together, they get a fantastic result for the both of them. Neither one of them is the star, right? Even though one's a leader and one's a follower. Um, that takes us to point number four. So 
let me recover this a little bit because I think I got a little weird on you. Uh, we're talking about going from soloist to conductor and then challenges to becoming a conductor. Challenges, going slow to go further, right? So that was the first thing. Sometimes if you're a leader, you go too fast and you got to slow things down. The second thing was recognizing that you need others. You can't do it on yourself, right? Uh, helping other people get what they want will help you get what you want. Three, you have to make the effort to understand others. And that's when I was talking about relationship, right? I want to make sure that I have the right relationship and use intuition before I leverage my leadership, right? Four is wanting others to shine more than you do. And I think if I was going to talk about levels of leadership, and I don't want to put words in John's mouth because he didn't write it this way. Um, but if I was going to talk about levels of leadership, this to me is one of the highest levels of leadership that you can attain. Um, for me, I've noticed, and then this is personal, right? This is just me talking. I've noticed I have an overbearing sense of, of pride when my team does something awesome and I really don't feel like I have anything to do with it other than the fact that it's my team. Like, I love the fact, like, I'd say Suzuki again. That was my last corporate job. So I was at Suzuki and, and we launched an e-learning, you know, two weeks ahead of schedule and the graphics are great and the voiceover is awesome and, the, you know, the script is good and, you know, it was timely and the material was appropriate. And then other people see it and they go, wow, man, that's, that's probably the best, you know, that's, that's the best e-module the company's ever put out, right? It's, it's not like, oh, aren't I amazing? Look what I did. No, it's the, the, the team. It was the talent of everybody. You know, I've got a subject matter expert that drew the material for the product. I've got someone else that wrote the script. I have someone else that read the script. I have someone else that edits video. And I might oversee the project, but I was super, super proud of my team and for the output that that team had had. And I didn't hesitate to say to others and the other managers within the corporation, oh, no, no, that was because so-and-so really rose to the occasion. And that's because you want your team to look awesome. Now, hmm, I don't want to call them out by name, but we can go back a couple of jobs. And I'll tell you that I had a manager who really thought, he really believed the only way he could make himself look good to his superiors was by making everyone on his team look like an idiot. He was one of those people that thought, and he believed this. I mean, he would articulate this. He would say this, right? He knew that if he were to make the rest of his team look bad, like the team couldn't survive without him. Like the team is so full of idiots. If it wasn't for his leadership, the whole thing would fall apart, which I will tell you is uh, grotesquely the opposite of reality. But in this particular situation, uh, he would form reports and he would come out with documents and all kinds of stuff that would try to elevate himself by making his team look substandard. And that is the exact opposite of leadership. That is, you know, um, gosh, if his team was full of females, they would call that toxic masculinity, right? I don't know what you call it when it's a bunch of guys on a team. I don't know what the excuse is other than the guy's just a jerk, but that is what I got to see firsthand. And so, and I'm not even angry about that. Like everyone always thinks, oh, aren't you angry about that? No, 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 no. That experience is what gave me the inspiration to better myself. So even when something bad happens, it's nothing to be upset or pissed off about. It's something to learn from and move on to the next biggest, baddest thing, right? So we did that. So you want others to shine more than you do. 
John's got a bunch of great text in there. Um, he's got kind of a poem thing in here. I don't consider myself a poet, but it says, before I say, follow me, I find you. Before I ask you to listen to me, I listen to you. When I show you the big picture, you are in it. When I point to success, I point to you. Often you hear me say, I need you. Often you discover he needed me. After the journey, we're both exhausted. After the victory, you hold the trophy. You know, and I think about like some of the really cool sport teams, like when someone wins a national championship and you see the big game on TV, it'll be like the team captain holding the trophy up and then he passes it off to his teammates. It's kind of that same mentality, right? Uh, moving further, and I'm watching the time, so don't worry. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna usurp your whole afternoon here. Um, it says, "Good leaders do what they can to put others in a position to win." And at the bottom of that section, so this is page 28. This is near the end of section four. There, he has some bullet points, and it says, "See the possibilities in all people." As a leader, I can tell you firsthand that is very difficult sometimes. So see the possibilities in all people. That's the first bullet. The second bullet says, honor them in front of others. That can also be a pretty hard one to swallow, especially if you're having a hard time with the first bullet. Uh, invite them to help achieve the vision. So this is what, um, like in the 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership, they would call it the law of the buy-in, right? You want to make sure that your team buys into what the vision is in the first place. If, if no one is sold out to the deal, then no one cares, then there's nothing to chase after, right? You've got to be clear about the goals. Uh, the fourth bullet, notice that they do well and compliment them. And again, if the, pardon me, if the first bullet is hard, that fourth bullet's really hard, right? Because you're supposed to see the possibilities in all people. That was the first bullet. And then this last bullet is thank them and make sure they know they're valued. And, you know, adding value to people has been probably the biggest driver I've had since, honestly, 2011, 2012. Almost every relationship, every conversation, every, um, you know, vendor relationship I might have, it's, it's not so much um, just an exchange or a transaction, but it's about building that relationship. And it's that relationship that leads to future successes. So. Uh, I hope that that makes sense. Like when I teach service writers and service managers in the power sports industry, um, how to really grow their service departments, I tell them, don't focus on the transactions. Don't focus on charging $60 for that oil change. Like that oil change is the least important thing. The most important thing is the relationship with that customer because that customer is going to spend thousands of dollars, you know, over five years of motorcycle ownership, not just that oil change. And so it's, it's really about focusing on relationship. And if you focus on relationship, the rest will follow naturally anyway. But if you focus on transactions, that's hollow. And when you chase after something that's hollow, it makes it really hard when you get down to invite them, invite them to help achieve the vision. If you're focused on transactions and not relationships, it's hard to call it a vision because it's just a transaction. So... Uh, section five is helping others to become better every day. And this really is just taking the focus off of yourself and looking for ways to help others to reach their potential. You know, I don't know what that means for you. Um, you know, if you're in a volunteer organization and you're, and you're watching kids, 
Maybe you give them access to some online training about, you know, the dynamics of working with children. Um, if you're working with uh, machinery, you know, maybe, uh, you know, if you're working with something that's like a, a four-stroke engine of some kind, you know, make sure they understand four-stroke theory and, and how to measure valve adjustments and things like that. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of ways that we can add value to people or invest in people. And sometimes it can be as simple as just taking them out to lunch sometime, you know, and spending some time with them and getting their feedback. But you always want to make sure that you're helping others to become better every day. And see, I just saved you a whole page of reading right there. That was page 29. Uh, when I get to halfway down page 30, there are three questions that John likes to ask people when he's training them about leadership. And this is kind of important because remember what I said, I, John travels the world and sometimes he'll talk to a group. He'll say, who wants to be a leader? And then nobody puts up their hand, right? And, and it's, so he, he has the full gamut, he, global training, right? So when he's training somebody, he'll say, how many of you have been hurt by leaders? You know, and hands will get raised. Um, he'll say, uh, everything rises and falls on leadership. You know, and I'll say, if you have um, experienced leadership that's fallen short, before, tonight I'm going to show you how to help people, how to add value to people, and how to help them rise under your leadership, right? And then that's a whole different perspective. This is something a lot of folks have never heard. And honestly, if we talk to some baby boomers in the corporate world, they might not have heard stuff in this way, right? So then he gives them three questions and he asks the followers to ask the leaders, right? So if, if you are somebody that works under another leader and you're kind of evaluating the leader above you, you would say, do you care for me? Can I trust you? And can you help me? And if you're currently working for a leader and they can't answer affirmatively to those three questions, then maybe it's time for you to look for a different leader to work under. Right. And that's one of those things where I'll, I don't hesitate at all to tell people make a lifestyle change or, or a career change because I'll, I'll bounce whenever. Right. So do you care for me? Can I trust you? And can you help me? Um, I highlighted a part that I wanted to read. It's about two paragraphs. It says, uh, before the course was taught to a group of teenagers, the participants were asked to complete a survey. One question was asked, do you want to become a leader? When they were asked before going through the curriculum, 95% of the respondents answered no. Their opinion of leadership and leaders was negative because most of them had observed corrupt and manipulative leaders taking from others rather than adding to them. Their leaders didn't care about them, so they didn't care to become leaders. However, after taking the course, their attitudes about leadership had shifted. So when we say taking the course, we're talking about discussing ideas like what we're discussing here today, right? When asked the same question, 85% of them responded with a yes. Why? They had been taught that leadership was about helping people, adding value to them, and using influence to improve their community. And that's something they wanted to be a part of. So when we do this type of training or these types of masterminds, those are the types of things that I always concentrate on. So as we do more of these John Maxwell properties, those are things like, do you care for me? Can I trust you? Can you help me? If you're not interested in becoming a leader, why aren't you interested in becoming a leader? Why wouldn't you want to leverage your skill set and add value to others? And then we can discuss it and then see if maybe you'd like to become a leader, right? And then we can go over more stuff. When you decide that you're going to become a conductor instead of a soloist, uh, it says the next thing to do is to just focus on adding value daily to people. It says every day, 
Look at your calendar and ask yourself, where can you add value? Um, what additional opportunities to help others will be given to you today? So uh, not just Katie, because she's on the live video, but people that are on YouTube, people that are on Facebook, people that are watching this in the, in the mastermind lesson load on, on the academy. You know when you're, you're thinking about getting a new car, and you, and you say, oh man, that red Camaro looks awesome. I think, I, I think you know what, I, I think I might wanna get a red Camaro. And then you think to yourself, I'm thinking about getting a red Camaro. How many red Camaros will you see for the next week while you're driving back and forth to school or to work? Right, Katie, will you see more? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> or, uh, you know, me, I'm, I'm addicted to motorcycles. So I'll say, oh man, I'd like to get a new Ducati. And then, you know, you know, you never see a really nice Ducati around the neighborhood. And the next thing you know, all I hear is, you know, tractors going up and down the neighborhood. And it's obviously a Ducati, not a tractor, but they sound like tractors. And so, uh, and so I go, oh, look at that. There's Ducatis everywhere. You know, everyone's copying me. It's, it's that type of thing is, is what I'm talking about here where it says focus on adding value daily. If you wake up in the morning and you think, where can I add value today? If you make that your mindset in the beginning of the day you'll see more opportunities throughout the day. It'll be something you're looking for subconsciously, pardon me, rather than an afterthought. Same thing, what additional opportunities to help others will be giving me today. Again, it has to be kind of a cognizant thought in the morning. You set yourself up and then mentally, you're alert, you're awake to see those opportunities and then you're there to add value to people. And you know, adding value to people can be as simple as like, I go to the Albertsons and this coronavirus thing is nuts. The store is crazy. People are being crappy to the checkout people. The checkout people have been there through the whole nonsense. Everyone else is at home, you know, doing Netflix and chill and complaining because there's no toilet paper. And the, the people at the counters are putting up with this stuff, right? And then me and Hayden go into the store and, you know, we start throwing ice cream around like footballs and, you know, buying beer and wine and chips and salsa. And we go up and I say, hey, thanks for hanging out, you know, during this whole nonsense. Is there anything I can get for you? I say to the lady at the checkout. And she's like, what? I go, well, you've been standing here all day. Is there anything you want? You want me to get you a bottle of water or something? And she's like, no, you know, no one's ever, no one offered me anything all day. You're the sweetest person ever. And that's not because I want to be called the sweetest person ever. It's because I know she's having a rough day and I just want to be nice to her and add a little value to her. Maybe make the next hour that she's got to stand there and deal with idiots just a little less hurtful, right? Just make it a little bit better. Um, when I would, when I would drive on the East coast through the toll booths, I would always like race up there. Like, like it's a pit stop in the Indy 500, you know, I just race up, stop. And I'd be like, Hey, how you doing tonight? And then and they're always like, this guy's an idiot. And it's okay if they think that I'm an idiot because we're having fun, right? I pay the toll. I wish them a great night and off we go. And hopefully it raises their spirits enough to, you know, just get over the boredom of standing in a three by three booth for 12 hours at a time. Right? So when John was writing about focus on adding value daily, he wrote a, he put a graph in, in the book and I was going to draw it on the whiteboard in the program, but I am not an artist. I need someone like Brooke to jump in here on these things with me, but he has this circle here, right? And so at the top, it says belief. Then it goes to anticipation, right? And you see how it goes around, it goes down to focus, opportunity, goes to action, goes to passion, goes to belief. Well, it's like a recycling icon. And this recycling icon 
is meant to never be broken. So if you have a belief, the belief encourages anticipation and the anticipation creates an intention, right? To move forward. And then the intention helps you prioritize. It helps you focus and the focus helps you to see the opportunity. And so it's like, I have a course on the Manana Nomas Academy. It's all about capitalizing on opportunities. It's, it's kind of what that is, right? It's, it's like raising to the occasion to see the opportunity, right? Only when you see the opportunity, can you take the action. And then when you take the action, the action creates a passion. And then that passion reinforces your belief. And then it goes around and around and around again. Um, people that know me, they know that I like to mountain bike. And two years ago, when I would go mountain biking, is that a dog? Yeah, that's my dog. <laughs> She's leaving. <laughs> two years ago, wow, I bored a dog. That's bad. A dog is leaving <laughs> class. Um, two years ago, when I would ride the mountain bike, I would come up on a, on a rock garden or a descent with a lot of rocks and boulders. And I would jump off the bike, you know, and I'd say, oh, that looks like a little hike a bike. We're going to do a little hiking. And then I'd carry the bike down, you know, over the rocks and, you know, like, like a lion heart, the chicken hearted or whatever, whatever you call that. Uh, I would get back on the bike and then do the rest of the trail. Well, then my friends would take me back to these places over and over and over again. And then it got to where I'd see them dropping in over these rocks. And I was like, I think I can do it. I think I can do it. First time I would do it, I'd be like, oh my goodness, I'm going to die. And then, you know, I think about, well, when I broke my collarbone seven weeks ago, I was really kicking it. I was jumping doubles, jumping rock gardens. I was, you know, I was catching air. I was doing uh, all kinds of things. And it's because if you think about this cycle, it was like, I didn't believe that I could do it. And then I anticipated incorrectly. And then I didn't have the intention to follow through. And then it came around and I saw the opportunity. And then I took a little bit of action and that grew a passion for it. And then it gave me the belief that I could start to do it. And then it got better and better and better. And if I think about how many times I went around this stupid circle in a year or two years of mountain bike riding, I've gotten to the point now where I'm one of those dudes that could have a YouTube channel, mountain biking, doing downhill at Greer. Um, are other people faster than me? Yeah, but I'm 52 years old and I'm launching doubles and jumping rock gardens and having a blast, right? And so it's that process, right? That process of, of getting good at something. Now, one step further with the mountain biking analogy, talking about soloist to conductor. If I was gonna concentrate on being a soloist, I would just be worrying about me mountain biking. But, I went mountain biking with five other people from the office and we would constantly be working with each other on each other's weaker points. Like I'm really good at climbing up hills. I'm really good at putting the muscle down and getting up a technical climb. Someone else might not be as good at that. So instead of racing up and waiting for them at the top, you know, you'd slow down a little bit and you'd ride with them and you'd work with them through it. And you're like, okay, you know, are you, how's your foot placement? How's this? How's that? Right. And, you know, how, are you sitting back on your seat? You sitting forward on your seat. And if you're not into mountain biking, maybe you don't understand this or I'm talking over your head a little bit, but if you move your butt back like an inch on your seat, you get a lot more torque pushing down on the pedals. And so there's a lot of techniques that you could share. And then when we get to those rocks that I would used to hike a bike around two years ago, and now that I jump off of, um, it was only through their help and their inspiration that I overcame my weakness, right? So we all became a conductor of sorts 
because if we were musicians, we would have been making music with these mountain bikes, right? Everybody would take their high point and then blend it together to make the perfect song. And so for me, that's what that meant. Uh, add as much value as often as possible. I think that goes without saying. And near the end here on page 35 of this chapter, he says, never wait to add value. And I'm looking at the time, so that's why I'm jumping over to this. It says, too many people wait to do good. And here we are in the wake of this coronavirus nonsense. All of this stuff is going on. And it says, too many people wait to do good. And then it says, give without keeping score. We live in a tit-for-tat culture. You have to be willing to give and not always expect a return. Um, and then he has some personal stories in there about how when he was an early leader, he would do something and expect instant payback, or he would do something and expect recognition. Pardon me. Um, as you develop as a leader, you need to get to the point where you do the right thing, where you give, you contribute, and you don't necessarily expect anything back. You just know that it's the right thing to do. And if you do enough of the right thing, things work out, right? Um, there's a saying in our group that I use quite a bit. I say, it'll always work out, right? <laughs> now I'm talking about faith, but I say, you know, I don't worry about it. God's got it. It'll all work out. And I honestly believe that if I just keep doing the right thing, everything is going to work out. And so that's part of why with the coronavirus thing, I jumped out and I thought, ready or not, I'm going to do this mastermind on the leadership book because I need to share what's in this book with anyone that'll listen to it. I believe the country has a real leadership vacuum, a real leadership deficit. I look at politics. I look at the news. I look at the press. I look at um, management as I go to different stores, uh, as I see the lack of investment that companies are willing to make in their people. And I say, wow, you know, there's a real leadership vacuum that needs to be filled. And if I can share any information that's going to help people get up to a certain level to where they can run teams of people more effectively, then I know that I've done something that's the right thing. And so hopefully people will see this and they'll kick in for, for more of these sessions. Um, the last thing that he wrote in here in this chapter was welcome any return as an unexpected blessing. It says, uh, and the part that I highlighted out of that says, all that time my focus was on adding value. My goal was only to sow seeds. And it's talking about a, a seed and harvest representation. I teach that a lot with sales. So if I'm doing sales training, I'll talk about a seed and harvest type sales process. Um, but it says, my goal was only to sow seeds, but I have to say the return has been incredible. The influence I've been given and the value I've added is far greater than I imagined it could be. And through my own personal experience, and I'm nowhere near the level of someone like John Maxwell, I won't take any credit for anything like that, but um, I will tell you, when I've had people reach out to me that maybe I mentored in 1996, maybe 2002, maybe 2008, um, man, if you go to my LinkedIn, you'll see recommendations from people. And some of those people are people that I've dealt with as far back as like 1980 seven and the the harvest the the good feelings the things that that count in life the relationships that are positive um came from doing the right thing at the right time adding value to people along the way and so if i can encourage you to do that i'm going to do that every single time 
the last page that he wrote here was another one of these poem things. This one's by Matthew Kelly. And remember that this was about being a soloist to a conductor. And then he tried to talk about farming with the seed and harvest. And he tried to, a lot of things were blended here. So he put this thing in here from Matthew Kelly. And Matthew Kelly writes, in a land where there are no musicians, in a land where there are no storytellers, teachers, and poets, in a land where there are no men and women of vision and leadership, in a land where there are no legends, saints, and champions, in a land where there are no dreamers, the people will most certainly perish. But you and I were the music makers. We were the storytellers, teachers, and poets. We are the men and the women with vision and hope. We are the legends, the saints, and the champions, and we are the dreamers of the dreams. And uh, that's that, says, I would add that we are the conductors uh, who help others make beautiful music. That closes out the second chapter of leadership. Um, I hope that you guys see value in this, and I hope that you are signed up in the Academy on Manana Nomas so that you can kind of review this stuff as a resource. Um, the leadership book to me is just, it's a remarkable work because it's not just talking about the theories of leadership. It's not just talking about do this to be a good leader. It's talking about do this in combination with really great timing because things are moving at a much faster pace than what we had experienced previously. And like I said at the beginning, I said it Tuesday and I said it again today, um, the coronavirus has really upped the game. When I think about people working remotely, uh, you know, if you're, think of this, if you're a leader, if you're a manager in a major corporation and you're not used to being able to micromanage your people from five feet away, how are you gonna make your department effective, productive, and profitable at distance? It's a fair question. Because if you haven't invested in the relationship to work with those people at distance, you're not going to get the proper effectivity out of them. And so relying on content like this and bringing up your game to raise your leadership lid, I think is, uh, is a super important project. And I'm willing to work with folks that you know, might find deficiencies with this stuff. So reach out to me on Manana Nomas. You just hit the contact link at the top of the, at the, top of the website. Uh, this will be posted on YouTube and it'll be posted on uh, Facebook and it'll be in the Manana Nomas Academy. And Cassandra was our guest today. <laughs> you want to say goodbye to everybody? Goodbye. All right. Uh, that concludes the lesson today. I think uh, I don't want to spam people and overdo it. So let's say that we'll do the third chapter on Tuesday, uh, Tuesday at three o'clock, just like we did Tuesday at three o'clock this week. And then uh, I'll post that up on social so that you can add that to your calendar and all that kind of fun stuff. And all of these videos, like I said, get added to the lesson load for future use on the Manana Nomas Academy. So have yourself a great day. Enjoy the weekend. Cassandra, I will see you on Zoom at least by Tuesday, right? Okay. We're going to do, yes. do Resonate on Zoom next week. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah, I put, I put that on the Facebook page. Okay, cool. Um, if you talk to folks, say hi for me and uh, wash your hands. Always. <laughs> wash your hands and uh have a blessed weekend talk to you later all right bye bye when i first thought of the prospect of working from home working remotely and the stay-at-home movement i thought how can i add value to the people that have the time to listen and that's when I thought this is the perfect time to cover the book Leadership, 
written by John C. Maxwell. And some of the leadership uh, philosophies that he brings forth in this book are such a value to share. And I hope that you find value in the series that I'm promoting here on Anchor, on the other channels that Anchor supports, and the replays available at the learning management system we have at manyananomas.com. If you go to manyananomas.com, click on Academy in the upper menu, you'll see that Leadership is a free course that people can participate in, catch up on the replays, and then join our live shows. Have a great one.